Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right. Welcome to church. Um, If I haven't met you, I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here. I used to say this a lot when I, I, a few years ago, and I hadn't said it as much lately, but that video reminded me. I used to greet people and say, welcome to the place where the church known as Garfield Memorial Church gathers every week. Uh, We forget the church, as they say, is not the building. The church is sitting next to you, right? Um, And so we've been thinking about our journey as Garfield Memorial Church. I'm now in my 16th year, and Everywhere along the way, we've, we've watched God do some amazing things here, but we've taken this year 2020, and we've said this is going to be a time of vision. So we, for the last four weeks in January, talked about Vision 2020. It wasn't just a worship series. It, it's kind of our theme for the whole year. Where's God taking us collectively as a church the next three years, the next 10 years? Our leaders are doing a lot of reflection about that, but, but it's also a good discipline for us individually. If you're a guest here and you're like, well, I'm not part of this church. I don't even know if I want to be part of this church. That doesn't matter. It's like, what about our own journey? Do we take time for vision, to look at our lives, to look at how we're growing spiritually? Not just how are we doing physically or financially or in our career path, but how are we growing more and more in our spiritual life to be more like Jesus this year than we were last year, to be more like Jesus tomorrow than we were today, to be more like, more, more Christ-like 10 minutes from now than we were when we came in. That's kind of what we're looking at. And I love that video. It says, we're going to go out and be the church. And so how do we do that? What are kind of our directives, right? So we talked about vision and now we're moving into values. For what are our values as a church? What are our values as, uh, you know, seekers and believers in Christ? What are the bedrocks we're standing on? And that's why you wonder, well, what do values have to do with stones? Why do you get this stone image? Well, we've been, we've been dealing with this kind of tagline from Joshua. We're not preaching on it, but it's a great story. When God had given, after God brought the people out of Egypt, he gave them a vision of a new land, a vision of a new community, a vision of how to be a people that, while they were slaves in Egypt, to be a people that don't enslave people, but as you've been set free, how do you set others free? through love and through grace and through walking humbly with God. And so right when they were about to go into the, into the promised land, the new land, and build out this new nation, uh, this new group of people that was supposed to be a light to the world of, of, of God's basic values for the world, they went across the Jordan and God told them, put rocks. He had separated the Jordan waters. Put rocks so you remember everything I've done And when your children ask, I love that, when your children ask, they don't just ask, what do those stones mean, like it's Stonehenge or something. What is that? Did aliens do it? But notice what it says, what do those stones mean to you? Why were these important? And you're going to have bedrock foundation to say things like, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but God let us out. 
with a mighty hand. We were in darkness ourselves, but God showed us the light, and now we are called to share the light and to be a light for the nations. So those were their values, right? And, and so vision is kind of our common marching orders, values how we live them out. I've been doing a lot of teaching this week. I was in Syracuse uh, teaching a lot of churches. How many know if you live in Cleveland, you should not fly to Syracuse? Um, any of you know that? Some of you that travel? Um, they booked me in advance. I should have driven. You know, I left my house at 10. I could have been there at 3. But instead, I left my house at 10. I got there after midnight. And now on my way home, I was supposed to leave like at 1 and be home by 7. I got home at like 3 in the morning. And I'm like, I will never fly to Syracuse again. And I'm training some of these churches for a week. But I, but I was out journeying, doing that. Led some training yesterday for Ashland Seminary. And whenever I'm teaching and training and people, let me tell you, Garfield, you guys have a wide reach. You are widening the circle because folks are, are hungry to know how can we more resemble the kingdom and the community like you guys are trying to do, not perfectly, but just in a very unique way. I always take them back to something. I didn't know I was going to talk about this today or put up, put up the slide. And believe me, for folks who've traveled with me for more than five years, they've heard this a million times. Um, if you hang around, you'll hear it a million more. But there was a book that really infected me a few years ago. It's called um, Start With Why. It's by a guy named Simon Sinek. Uh, Simon Sinek's not a theologian. He's like a TED Talk guy in corporate arenas. But he talks about organizations. And he says there's three most important things for an organization. A why, a how, the why, the how, and the what. The why is the center of the hub. The how is kind of your stones, what you walk on. The what is what you do. And so when I go out, I'm always trying to remind churches and pastors, what is our why? See, we focus too much on our what's. You know, in fact, here's what happened. I've made the same mistake. I'm not trying to pick on you. But if somebody said to you, well, tell me about your church. Tell me about Garfield Memorial Church. Here's things that you might say. You might say, oh, my gosh, we got this incredible band. we got these amazing musicians. They travel all over the world. They, they take us to heaven. And we got a guy that talks a lot, and he's not real bright, but he's, he's cute, and he's funny sometimes, and he's a big teddy bear, and, and, you know, we got a nice cafe. And see, that would be wrong. Not wrong what you said about me, but wrong, <laughs> but wrong of what Garfield, or who Garfield Memorial Church is, because all that is is what's. That's things we do that grow out of our what, our why. And our why here is widen the circle. And people would say, you know, tell me about Garfield Memorial Church. What's your church like? Here's what I should do. We widen the circle. Well, what does that mean, right? Somebody's going, what does that mean? Well, God came into the world in Jesus Christ, so loved the world. I know preachers tell you so judge the world, but God loved the world to widen the circle, to let people know how loved they are and that God wants to bring all of God's family, all of his children back together. And so we join God in that. We widen the circle. To do what? To make disciples of Jesus Christ, to transform God's world. That might be something people are interested in coming to, right? Then how do we do that? How do we widen the circle? What's our values? That's what we're going to talk about. Our five core values here at Garfield, if you haven't heard this before, there will be a test, okay? Um, but they are, they're on our website. They are biblically grounded and biblically mandated. These aren't things we just said, oh, that's a good word. Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's politically correct, whatever. Um, we just basically, these are what we felt God was saying to us of the, the foundation that we have to stand on and make sure we don't negotiate from. And so our five core values are safety, growth, authenticity, 
diversity, forgiveness. Those are our five core values. So we're going to take these four Sundays leading up to Lent and Easter. We'll start the journey to Easter in March where we take the 40-day kind of journey and we get ourselves going to Easter. We got a series for that. But we thought, let's pause for a moment. We've talked to vision. Let's go to values. So we're going to talk safety this week, growth next week, authenticity. Maybe, I'm not sure that's the order. Forgiveness the last Sunday. And then on Ash Wednesday, that's a midweek, it's Wednesday. And all of you are out there is, what is Ash Wednesday? I'm not Catholic. Are you going to burn me? (laughs) Is this the Salem witch trials? No. Um, We celebrate uh, the giving of ashes, or you can do oil. Um, It's just a symbol that we're starting a reflective journey toward Easter. And Pastor Lori is going to preach that night. You're not going to want to miss this. And we're going to dig down deep in the core value of forgiveness. In fact, I'm going to tell you something I didn't tell the other services. We're going to give you opportunities to bring what you feel you need forgiven for or you need help forgiving with and put that down on paper. And at the end of that service, we're going to burn that stuff and turn it into ashes. Okay? So don't miss that. So that's a tease. So you can go, like when you see the 10 o'clock crowd coming out next week, say, I know what's going on Ash Wednesday. You know. Um, Unless this one's online. Maybe it is or isn't. Um, so we're talking today safety. That's our first core value. I'm not mentioning the core value of safety because it's the only term that's actually in football. I wasn't that cute today. That's not why. Oh, you guys didn't know there's a football game today? Okay. Um, so we're talking about safety because we believe that our core value of safety and the core value of safety in the kingdom is a key foundational principle for everything we do as a church. Right? I had this vision when I came to Garfield over 16 years ago. I've only served two churches as lead pastor, um, a wonderful church I loved in Lorraine County in an urban context, and here at Garfield Memorial in our three churches. And in both places, I sat down and I prayed with our leaders, and we were much smaller way back then than that. But I said, what if, here was the what if question, what if we build a church where we receive people the way Jesus received people? What if? And unfortunately, that's kind of a radical idea, right? But what if we didn't sit there and play, you know, high pontificating, holy, you know, we got all the answers, and we just met people at the point of their needs and went to them with the love and the grace and the safety with which we were received. Now, there was something years ago that kind of countered this, and I want to I dispel this at the beginning. Um, Anybody remember the book? Did, when you were growing up, did you read the book or did you see the movie about Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Anybody see that? Good stuff. C.S. Lewis, he wrote the books, The Chronicles of Narnia, turned into motion pictures, good, wholesome films. C.S. Lewis, famous theologian, he basically took the gospel, the Christian story, the story of Christ, and he wrote it in language that children could hear and understand and the child in all of us could long for. And so you had the four children that went through the wardrobe and went into this Narnia land. And if you know, they were the representatives of us, of humans that God created a little lower than the angels, Adam and Eve, the original children of God created human likeness out amongst the animals, out in God's creation. And then Aslan, the lion, was the Jesus figure in the story. And in it, the the children representing us find out that the lion, Jesus, wants to meet them. Lucy is a little girl, and she's not sure how she feels about meeting a lion. And so she's told this, and she goes to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and she says, is he safe? And the beavers go, 
he's a lion. <laughs> like, he's not safe. But he is good. And he is the king. And if C.S. Lewis is right, then Chip must be wrong, because Chip, you're saying God is safe, or safety is a core value. But C.S. Lewis says God's not safe. And let me clarify this for you. If you're going to God to get things, if you're going to God to endorse your personal agenda, if you're going to God and co-opting God into your political party, watch now, or your political agenda, or to validate things you think the Bible says because you want them to say it, God is not safe. If you go to God to basically say, God, I haven't got my life figured out, and I want, you know, I, I want comfort, and I want convenience, and I want these things, and I would like you to be my personal assistant. I want you to be Will Smith, my genie, and I'll be Aladdin. Two people got that. Should I said Robin Williams in the first animated film and be more correct? You know, if we go to God to be our personal assistant, God is not safe, right? If we go to God to hate all the same people we hate, God is not safe. If we go to God and say, God, look, I want to be a follower of yours. I really like what you say about prayer. I really like what you say about giving or about forgiveness. I don't like this giving of my money stuff. God is not safe. If you go to God and say, well, look, I like to give my money, I like to write checks, but I don't like to like serve and do things and give my time, God is not safe. If you want God to be God who will never ask you to do something that you don't want to do, God is not safe. But if you go to God for God, if you go to God humbly, the Bible says a humble heart I will not despise. If we go to God because we know God is God, and, and we don't try to cut God down to our size, but we realize that God is our creator. God is our redeemer. God is our sustainer. And we go to God that way, he's safe. And here's something I want to say to you, and our story's an illustration of this with Joseph Fred. If you go to God bruised, if you go to God broken, if you go to God bored, I'm just worn out, God is the safest place you can ever go. And that's what we see in our story today. We see this core value of safety. We see this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. I'm going to talk about that. But here she is. She's drug out by the religious establishment. She is publicly humiliated. She has her, you know, her face, her nose ground down right in her own sins. And she, these, these people want to harm her. They want to disgrace her. They want to humiliate her. And they, they want to kill her. And they throw her down at the feet of Jesus not knowing that they have placed her right now in the safest place she could ever be. And Jesus shows us that, that God is a God of justice and a God of mercy. See, we struggle with those two things. You know, it, Somebody once said that if you're too compassionate, then you, you might ruin morality. But if you're absolute moral, you're going to run people into the ground. But Jesus takes compassion and justice law and grace in such a perfect and beautiful way that lets us know that with God, with Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, Savior, and Lord, we're safe. 
In fact, when the Old Testament used to talk about the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah prophesied about it, and Matthew, the gospel writer, said, this is who's here. It talked about him being this perfect mixture of justice and mercy, of grace and love. And it said that, that, that here is my servant, Isaiah, and Matthew said, my chosen, my beloved, right, Jesus, with whom my soul is well pleased. Here's my servant who I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. This is all Messiah language. I'll put my spirit on him, and he'll proclaim justice to the nations. He's the righteous king, but watch this. But a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory and in his name all of us will put his hope. That nations is the word ethne. All people groups will put their hope. He's this wonderful mixture. See, these, these religious people come out and they think they have the perfect trap for Jesus. And if you read the story, they have bad intentions. They were not going to do some liberation. They weren't singing like, you know, heal us here, Lord, like we sang. They were saying, we're going to go trap him. Now, the wonderful thing about this, if you read the Bible, every time the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or the religious people, the lead pastors, the popes, the bishops, every time they set a trap for Jesus, they end up falling in it. Watch through it. I could prove that on many notes. But here they come. They, they're going to trap him because here's what they're going to do. They, he, they've heard him say in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. So the law of Moses is clear. If you are caught in adultery, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, people commit, caught in the, in the act of adultery shall be killed. So he said he came to fulfill the law. So if we, if we take this person who committed adultery and he doesn't agree that we should stone her, we got him. He's violating the law. But on the other hand, he's this savior, meek and mild. He keeps telling people that God is love, that God is grace, and these tax collectors, and these prostitutes, and these Roman centurions, everybody's coming to him, and it was driving the religious people crazy because they want everybody to feel guilty. That's what religious people do. That's what you pay me for. So you come in here, and you feel miserable when you leave, right? And, they were, and Jesus was so compassionate, he was so accepting. And they said, so if he follows the law like he's supposed to, now we got him. Because we can say, oh, you heard him say, come unto me, all you who are weary laden, and I'll give you rest. But look what he's saying now. Come unto me, all you weary, and I'll have you executed. So we got him. But they forgot, this is no mere man. <laughs> this is God. And when they tried to put him in a trap, they fell in the trap. And so let's look at this story, this wonderful one, has this incredible balance. Justice and mercy, law and grace. Abraham Hesher was a great um, uh, rabbi, and he once said something I, I really love. He said that God harasses the comfortable and comforts the harassed. And we see both of that happen in the story. He takes the comfortable, those who are sure they're right, and he harasses them back down to a level playing field. And he takes those who are harassed, and he provides comfort. So how does he comfort the harassed? Let's look at this. These, these religious people come out. They throw this woman at his feet. They publicly humiliate her, said she, we caught her in the act of adultery. She deserves to be stoned. And Jesus does what? He gets down and he doodles in the dust. Now, I have heard wonderful sermons through the years from people way smarter than me, some very, very famous, like, you know, some great theologians, and they preach about what re Jesus wrote in the dust. Now, they were great sermons, but the truth is, what did he write? Nobody knows. The right. Bible never tells us. But I just think it's an awesome image that the same finger that wrote the law on the tablets in Mount Sinai 
that the same finger that showed up on Belshazzar's wall in Daniel that said, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, is now scribbling in the courtyard. When they tell him, this is what the law says. Now, we don't know what he wrote, but we know what he said. He said, okay, any one of you that's without sin here, you throw the first stone. Do you see, they've set a trap for him and now they're in it. And all the rocks drop and they began to leave. Now, what was going on here? Jesus said, you are coming to condemn her, but what about you? Notice Jesus never said a rock should not be thrown. He just said, I'm not sure you're the one, though, that's equipped to throw it. In fact, what he's saying is, I challenge the fact that none of you are qualified to be witnesses or executioners. Now, what's going on? He is calling out their hypocrisy because let me tell you something about the law. We always think the Old Testament law, oh, they execute everybody. Oh, it's so harsh. Oh, it's so terrible. Kill them for this, kill them for that. Do you know, though, that that coupled with the Mosaic law was some of the hardest laws about evidence you'll ever find? That's why Jewish scholars will say almost nobody was ever the victim of capital punishment. In fact, in the Mishnah, the Jewish uh, interpretation of the law, it said if there was ever a court that would ever... Uh, commit capital punishment one time in seven years that court was viewed as a slaughterhouse they rarely did it you know why because we're in our country and in our modern law we have probable probable cause you ever heard that you've seen the just the movie just mercy and you go through history and the racial discrimination and in the failings in our court and our capital punishment system why because probability there was no probability in jewish law it had to be absolute, absolute fact. In fact, to commit, to, to convict somebody of adultery, you had to have two eyewitnesses that absolutely saw it. Okay, now, understand something. Here's probable cause. Hey, I saw John and Betty, and they were coming out of Motel 6 at 2 in the morning. That would fly in our system, wouldn't have worked in theirs. Oh, I went over to Jennifer's house, and... And uh, John was, and her were laying in her bed, and her husband wasn't home. That wouldn't work in Jewish law. You could not commit. You had to physically see them in every aspect of the act. Wow. A little creepy, isn't it? I don't even like those witnesses. <laughs> and they came. I could say something about that, but I won't. But they came, voyeurists, but they came. And said, we've seen every bit of this. I've seen it. 100% agree. And um, Jesus said, well, have you thought about your own sin? Because who was missing? Yeah. See, one woman got that. All the brothers went, oh! Yeah, right, where's he? I mean, the, the law is clear. And you had to physically see what was going on and watch it. So they obviously saw him. They knew who it was. And the fact that he's not here means this is entrapment. And she, the, the, the man, whoever he was that was involved in the act, he either assisted in the entrapment or at least went along with it. And so now you are saying you brought everyone, but you're, but you're not, you're just bringing her. And she is supposed to be given a legal trial. But you're a lynch mob now trying her in the streets. You are violating the law. So he's saying, I know you've come to condemn her, but what about you? 
What about your sexism? What about your patriarchy? What about your conspiracy? What about your entrapment? What about your failing to honor the law in its purest form? Now do you know why they dropped their rocks and went home? He brings that down. He, he basically says, I'm not, I'm not giving up of the law. I'm fulfilling the law, but you are not qualified to sit on the judgment seat, but I am. So then he turns to the, to the helpless, the harassed, and, he, and he, he, as he's harassed to comfort, he comforts the harassed, and he basically says to her, you know the story, he, he says, is anyone left? And they said, no, no, sir. And the Bible says they are utterly alone. Hold on to that for my end, utterly alone. And he says, uh, is anybody, was anybody condemn you? No, none condemn me. He said, I don't condemn you either. Now, the old King James English used to say, now go and sin no more. That's how we remember it. It's close. What it really says, go and stay away from your, from your sinful life. In other words, in the, in the Greek, actually, one scholar said he, that Jesus basically said, go now and quit doing the things that are ruining your life. Right? And, and, and he talks to her. He never says she's not guilty. Right? Never says that. But she, he says you're not condemned. Now, how can that be? For every, every religion in the world says, if you're not guilty, you're not condemned. But if you're guilty, you're condemned. Every religion says that, except Christianity. Christianity is the only one that says you can be guilty and not condemned. Why? Because Jesus is saying to her, you are not condemned because I am going to be condemned in your place. Rocks do deserve to be thrown at you and at that nasty crowd that entrapped you. But those rocks will not hit you because they're going to hit me. Spears ought to be thrown at Chip Freed for all the dumb things I've done, for the things I shouldn't have said, and the things that I, that I should have said and didn't. And he says, Chip, spears ought to be thrown at you, but they're going to go into my side. Thorns ought to come down on you for gossip things that you've done, for the way that you have failed to forgive others. They ought to come down, but Jesus says they're going to come down into my scalp. That we are not condemned if we're in Christ Jesus because he took that condemnation for us. Now, many of you sit there and say, wait a minute, does this mean we can just go on sinning and not be condemned? That's such an immature question, but I'll go ahead and answer it for you real quick. One, there will be a reckoning. I had God say that to me. You know what he said to me? In 2012, I went out with our youth group to Pine Ridge Native American Reservation in South Dakota the first time we made connections with the Lakota. The Lakota don't call it Pine Ridge Native American Reservation. They call it to this day POW Camp 334. It's the site of the largest mass shooting in the history of the United States. Over 300 unarmed women and children were executed on that spot in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Left in abjunct poverty in the United States. CNN doesn't cover it. Fox News doesn't cover it. MSNBC doesn't cover it. And you and I don't talk about it. But there is in our own country a place where the life expectancy for men is lower than it is in Somalia or Afghanistan. And the church says nothing. And the government says nothing. In fact, in history, there's only been one president to even visit Pine Ridge. And I was there weeping for how poorly Jesus had been represented. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, there will be a reckoning for this. 
And if you go to Dachau, if you go to Auschwitz, if you go to the National Lynching Memorial, they call it in Montgomery, you will hear the same words. And I'm talking about the big corporate sins. But God says, I will have a reckoning for even the little innocent sins. Because I hear Abel's blood crying from the ground. I heard Hannah's prayers and abused mom and wife at the altar. I heard Ishmael's cry of, of, a, of a single mom cast out in the desert to die. I heard my people's cries in Egypt, there will be a reckoning. The Bible says, be not deceived. Our God is not mocked for whatever we reap that what we sow. So don't ever say to me, oh, there will be a reckoning. Here's the deal, though. I am not qualified to sit on the seat of judgment. I cannot be the ultimate judge. Thank God I'm not your judge. Aren't you glad that your judge is the one that sits down and doodles in the, in the ground and ministers to you at the safety of his feet? And that's why Paul proclaimed that who is to condemn? None save Christ Jesus. If I'm going to get judged, and I will in time, I want it to be by him. So take your shots if you will. But I appeal to a higher court. And so that's what we leave and see. And the truth is, if we've experienced his love and his grace, why in the world would we want to go back to the things that are destroying our lives? Because I've said many times, point three, sin is not finally about breaking rules. That's how preachers preach it. Sin is about breaking your father's heart. And Hebrews 6 says when we do dumb things and we know the grace and the love of God, then we go ahead and crucify Christ again. And if we love him, I sure don't want to pound nails into his hands. Not in the one who has delivered me. So he's safe when you're hurt. He's safe when you're broken. He's safe when you're humble. He'll harass you when you're haughty and high. And if you get on that judgment seat and you suddenly do like the Sanhedrin did, where we are God's supreme court to interpret his law in the land, watch out. The Sanhedrin was brought low. Because God says in his word in 1 Peter, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me wrap this up. So if if he has dealt gently with us, we are to deal gently with others. We are to go out into the world and, and be safe people. Are you safe? Are you a safe follower of Christ? Can I trust you when I'm hurting when, when I am broken, and this is what I know, like people of color and people who are hurting in different communities, they don't expect other people of privilege or anything else to have it all figured out. But they'll say, I heard, I heard a theologian once say, do I mean enough for you that even if you don't understand it, and even though you haven't felt what I felt and understand why I'm crying, that you care about me enough to come sit with me in my hurt? Are you safe to sit with hurting people in their hurt? So here's the safety application. I'm going to wrap this up and we'll, we'll go home. The safety applications are important steps for us out of this story. First off, if you're bruised, friends, go to him. Why do I say that? Because wounded people wound other people. You know, hungry shepherds eat the sheep. So if we got some hidden hurts and, you know, we're just acting out on them, go to him. Go to his feet. You're safe with him. He's waiting for you. you, He will cast the crowd aside. Whoever you're worried is going to judge you, he'll send them all home so it's just you and him. And you don't have to go through a preacher and you don't have to go through a denomination and you don't have to go through some kind of training because you have access to him.
That's what the whole death of the cross was, that the curtain of the temple torn from top to bottom so you know who did it. So you don't have to go to a high priest. So you don't have to sneak around to the holy holies. So you don't have to get up and say, I need Chip to lay hands on my head. Lay hands on your own head and walk into the presence of God. Because Hebrews says we have a high priest. We are not just a lead pastor or a committee or a house of prayer. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus is son of God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Chip may not understand. Lori may not understand. But he understands. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. So... Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. Just go. And you say, I went before and I had my feelings hurt. You didn't go to him. You went to church. Go back to him. That we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So if you're bruised, go to him. If you have access, I'm almost finished. Justin's going to come up here and hit me with his guitar. Three, last, don't go to the wrong place. Don't go to religion. Don't go to the law. Go to the cross. Go to the place where you can receive mercy. And fourth, this is an important one. Get off the treadmill of trying to make yourself right with God. Get off the treadmill of trying to make yourself right in the eyes of your parents, in the eyes of your critics, in the eyes of your boss, in the eyes of yourself. And hear Jesus. Jesus didn't say, now go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. He said, I don't condemn you. Get off the treadmill of trying to be right and go and live a whole new life. And then finally, if you've done those things, then here's what you get to do. Join him in his work. Freed people, free others. Healed people, heal others. Broken people, connect with broken people. Lost people who are found find people who are lost. Do you see how this works? And go and join him in his work, okay? And here's the kind of church I want us to be. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm wrapping up, guys. It's Super Bowl Sunday. You can come get my TV. Go ahead, take it away. I'm fine. Get the band up here. It's Super Bowl Sunday, right? So I got to leave you with one Super Bowl story. You would feel undigested, right? Everybody who believes that, say amen. Okay, two people do. Everybody who wants me to get off the stage, say amen. Oh, man. Uh, I have a high priest who relates to me in every way. Uh, now, let me do this real quick. I, Super Bowl, I was watching in 16, and I was out in Syracuse, and it came to mind because I met some folk from Buffalo. Anybody remember in the 90s, Buffalo went to the Super Bowl four straight times and lost? It was tough stuff. And um, in 1990, they had the game won. Do you remember? Eight seconds left to go in the game, 1990. Scott Norwood went out to kick a 47-yard field goal. Game would be over. And poor Scott uh, missed, remember, by two words, wide right. We never knew those words till then. And Scott, we have a picture of him walking off the field in absolute dejection after that game. Um, It's going to pop up on the big screen, I think. Um, And so Scott was immersed and, and hurt, and he was dejected, and... And he went back, he was interviewed in this, 
in this uh, documentary, he went back home and it said he just wanted to hide. There he is. He just wanted to hide. He didn't want to be out there. His teammates were trying to encourage him, but he couldn't be encouraged. He wasn't sure he'd ever play again. He wasn't sure if the team would cut him or if he wanted to even go back to training camp. He was overwhelmed with despair until he got back to Buffalo and they landed and he got off the plane and there were 30,000 fans waiting for them. And they weren't taunting him. And they weren't shouting crucify him. And Scott said he tried to hide between the, behind the offensive linemen. Not hard to do when you're a kicker. But he heard the crowd saying, we want Scott. We want Scott. We want Scott. His teammates pushed him out. He had tears going down his face. And when he got out in the front, they said, we love Scott. We love Scott. We love Scott. Scott is one of ours. And they handed Scott the microphone, and in the interview, he broke up, and he said, I had nothing to say. I was trying to hide, and the only thing that came out of my lips was, I have never felt more love than this. What if people would come into our church, like Scott, expecting to receive a word of judgment, feeling I'm not good enough, but I'll give it a try, and they heard throngs of cheering people, we love Scott. You're safe here, Scott. Come meet Jesus, Scott. Because Jesus was safe for me. He'll be safe for you. Amen.